Um, thanks for letting me uh, piggyback tonight. Have you got the photo? Have a look at it. This is, this is for a book of uh, photos and stories that are, that's coming out next year. And they're all photos I've taken, and the stories are about, either about the photos or inspired by the photos. So here goes. I wrote this here. I took this in the apartment I lived in on 22nd Street in New York City in 2003. It was a funny old place, huge, like living in a basketball court, I always thought. The best thing about it was I could exercise my dog, Honey, without having to go outside, as she loved to chase me around the enormous living space perimeter, and the floors were wooden and shiny, so she skidded at every corner, and we both ran and ran till we were dizzy and hysterical. Another good thing this flat taught me was that I am not cut out for loft living. I could never get really cosy. I'd bought it with someone, but we split up, and so I moved in alone. But the whole aesthetic and sensibility was not for me. It was all theirs, and living in a house you'd bought for someone who is no longer in your life is not very healthy. I didn't stay there for long. The upstairs was a little better because it had some actual rooms and a terrace, which I loved, though because I knew I wasn't going to make this my home home, I never really committed to the terrace, and as you can see from this picture, it became a bit of a dumping ground as I stutteringly unpacked. Honey loved it, though. The sign I stole when driving up a mountainside in Tuscany because I just thought it looked like it was telling us we should be beware of men shoveling up poop. <laughs> and I actually think we should. The yoga mat was recently washed and drying in the sunshine. It is actually quite a contentious yoga mat, if you can imagine such a thing. For it had emblazoned on it, fuck yoga. My friend Barnaby used to have a line of t-shirts and yoga gear and skateboards that all said, fuck yoga. And I was the poster boy for the catalogue he made to sell them. It all caused quite a stir. Some people, of course, just thought it was funny and appreciated it in the way it was intended, adding the word fuck to the most benign and least likely activity to arouse expletives like yoga was a way of provoking a response and hopefully engendering a discourse about language and humour. But for others, the whole thing really pressed their buttons, and they couldn't exactly explain why. I loved it. Once, I was working out in a gym in Vancouver. When I arrived, I'd seen a few people whispering about me being there, something that I am very used to, and so I thought little of it. A little later, as I was puffing away on the peck machine, a young, perfectly formed trainer walked towards me, looking a little sheepish. I'm sorry to ask you this, he began. Of course, I countered knowing the best way to deal with this situation was to find a pen and a piece of paper, give him the autograph, and let us both move on as quickly and efficiently as possible. But no, that was not what he wanted at all. I'm going to have to ask you to leave the gym, he said. What? <laughs> I spluttered. Some of the members are offended by your... He gestured down to me with his muscly hand, and for an awful brief moment I thought my penis was sticking out of my shorts. <laughs> But then I realised the cause of the consternation. I was wearing a fuck yoga tank top. <laughs> My shirt? I asked incredulously. Yes. Many of our members practice yoga, he said solemnly. <laughs> well, so do I. I laughed a little, aware now of those I had offended, looking over from their little Lululemon huddle. <laughs> Look at my body. I admit this was a strange and possibly ill-timed admonition, but it was true. Had there been a yoga class available, there was no way I would have been struggling away with these unfamiliar fitness machines. 
Our members don't like yoga being made fun of, he continued. I looked over his shoulder to my humorless Canadian accusers and shouted, but it's a joke. It's ironic. I love yoga. They turned away as one. I noticed one of them was wearing white socks that came up to just below his knobbly knees and at that exact moment I knew it was a lost cause. I got up and left. The person in the picture is Rob, my boyfriend at the time. He was in training to run the New York Marathon and he had just come back to my flat after a huge long run up the West Side Highway. He would always be drenched in sweat after a run and want to shower immediately, but first he had to run the gauntlet of me, my ever-curious nose that loved to explore the olfactory nuances of an active young gentleman, and also my camera. This is as close as I got to him that afternoon. Eventually he did run the marathon, and what an eye-opening experience that was, for me at any rate. First of all, it entailed my going on the subway to Brooklyn twice in one day <laughs> to cheer him on at various stages of the ordeal. At mile 15, his friend and co-runner was on the point of collapse, and had I not been holding her up, she would have fallen to the ground in an exhausted, sweaty pile. Her younger sister, who was my runner-wife companion for the day, gave her some water and shoved a plastic tube of energy gel into her mouth. I'm not a quitter. The elder girl kept mumbling as her knees wobbled like jelly. I know you're not, but look, you're not well, I remonstrated, horrified at seeing someone so physically break down in front of my very eyes. Come on, you can do it, shouted a well-wisher from the crowd behind us. No, she can't, I shouted back, <laughs> angrily. She's practically unconscious. You can do it, they shrieked, ignoring me. Stop fucking encouraging her, I yelled back. Just then, something changed in her eyes, and I could feel the strength returning to her body. She lifted herself up from my grasp and tottered off into the swaying, sweaty throng. The glucose from the gel pack had kicked in, and her brain, if not her body, had told her she was well enough to continue. The worst part of the marathon was in Harlem, mile 22. I saw Rob turn a corner and hardly recognised him. At mile 15, he had bounded past me like a gazelle. Now he looked like an old man. Everything in his body seemed to be shutting down, and indeed it probably was. I was shouting louder and louder to try and get him to hear me, to encourage him, to will away the old man and to encourage the return of the gazelle I had seen earlier and, frankly, that I wanted to sleep with that night. Finally, he heard me as he ran close by and I saw a little flicker of a smile, but it was painful to watch. Soon after, I was at the finishing line. Mark my words. If you ever think of running a marathon, go to the finishing line of one and just watch the array of battered humanity that struggles across your vision. It will be seared into your mind forever and, will, and you will never want to entertain something so stupid again. I saw people collapsing, vomiting, pooping, crawling, all to the cheers and encouragement of their lunatic friends and family. I felt like I was at a cult meeting and I was the only one who was not a member. All around me, foil blankets flapped in the breeze, covering the beleaguered bodies of those who had just crossed the finish line. I saw them look down proudly at the medal that now hung around their necks, with a mixture of pride, disbelief and utter shock. Back at the flat, I made Rob and his chum both lie in baths of ice, as I'd done some research and found this was the best thing to do to prevent injury and quicken recovery. Later, we had friends over and had a little marathon celebration party. I made a toast. Frank, both in my admiration for their having achieved such a huge goal, 
but also in my incredulity that intelligent people would want to punish their bodies and threaten their health in such a momentous way. I reminded everyone of the whole reason marathons are run. In 490 BC, a poor bloke named Pheidippides ran from the Battle of Marathon to Athens to bring the message that the Persians had been defeated. He ran the entire 26.2 miles without stopping, and when he arrived, managed to get out, we have won, then promptly dropped down dead. <laughs> so marathon running is really a celebration of death. Which brings me to the stone dog in the picture. People used to think it was meant to represent honey, and though it looked a bit like her, I'd actually been given it by my mum as a housewarming present when my ex-wife and I moved into a flat in London in the late 80s. I got it in the divorce, and it has stayed with me through many moves, relationships, and homes since. Now, sadly, it does represent honey. After she died in 2014, we moved this stone dog to her favourite spot on the deck at our, at our house in the Catskills, where she loved to lie, one eye on the revelling humans around her, the other scanning the meadow below for pesky deer and wild turkey. We had a little memorial for her and put flowers round the stone dog's neck and dropped some of her ashes between its paws. Every time, we pulled up, every time we pull up in the driveway upstate, there it is, gazing out over the meadow from Honey's spot. And so naturally, it has now come to be Honey. So I'm glad I lugged such an unwieldy thing around the world for 25 years. And nearby, the Italian Beware the Poop sign leans against a wall, and often nursing a beer and laughing his booming laugh and thankfully no longer running marathons sits Rob. And I still do yoga on my fuck yoga mat. <laughs> Thank you. I have to follow that. Oh, it's terrifying as always. Oh, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for letting me piggyback on this as well. I'm going to read four pieces. And the first piece I'm going to read is from this long poem that I've been working on since I've been here. It's a, it's a poem that's 188 pages long at this point. I've been working on it for three years. Um, and it's, it's a lot, it's a long sort of philosophical poem about the ways that imagination makes the world. And this is the first uh, section of that it's fairly exhortative. The poem's called Radiant Action. This is called Radiant Intention. If you must, you must. Open your mouth. Let the light roll out, ping-pong with books, fire, 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 blinding lake water, weird sisters, blood brothers, dumb green hands. Come one, come all, to the wind-up spirit, the time unfolds with hips that shake, fists that burst. The light is mine, it rolls along. The love is mine too, it is also mine. The clash records and the skateboards, the devil beside me, the meadow beside me, the heavy water alphabet, 
The neighborhood yaysayers of Cincinnati, all my friends' palms, and my wife on arrival in the driveway after work so bewildered and beautiful, while I sit disheveled and think about tomorrow, this porch on this porch, the world's skull is mine, the hoped up, hopped for future is mine, the vanishment, the robots, but what's more, I belong to all of it. We are all of us inseparable from creation and destruction, the floodlight of darkness we emit in this life. Moreover, the forces we attract, catch, miss. How do we position ourselves to be our best? How do we make all this hell into a heaven, intractable heaven, awash in the glare, gorgeous glare of it? Oh, happy new breath, not blood, not hornet, not venom, not sonnets. I'm asking the questions because I want and need the answers. I wake up screaming my whole throat to red. Today is the day I'll attempt to make sense. My dumb green heart is wide open. Reaching the awe sound. This has an epigraph from the band Proto Martyr, which goes, And I'll try to live defeated. Come and see the good in everything. Outside animals sound. Come and see, then lead us all to heaven. Here and now, this blue winter sky, and outside a light frost, the windows of the houses and the windows of the cars, I walk out on the porch and my glasses fog up, I start my car to make things warm, voices swirl around as a white muzzled dog trots by in this marvel of everything good morning, back inside with the radio on. The word in the air is terrorist suspects, videos of child soldiers executing spies. I wrestle the juice from an orange in my mouth. I read the beginning of Song of Myself. The price of petroleum, a coming election, a stepped-on spear of dead winter grass. I do not loaf. I lean on the counter and call for my daughter. She puts her small self in a puffy blue coat. I put my small self in a black wool sweater. I drive her to school with the radio off. She spells words with the aw sound in them. Awesome, outlaw, walrus, autumn. Divides by nines from 108. At the drop-off spot, she gets out of the car. I love you, I say. I'll be back to pick you up. And when she shuts the door, I turn the radio on. And then I turn it back off. At home, Greek yogurt with pistachios and pecans, a little honey. I drink life down to a hot cup of coffee, this soft dailiness. My ordinary yawp and drawer and author and oft. This picture of heaven where there isn't any heaven is as good a place as any to begin to make a heaven. Either we give ourselves to a course of action or we do not give ourselves, wrote William Carlos Williams. The rest of the day, I'm mostly messed up. I go on my nerve. I celebrate myself. I burn through the world with my hands held out. Heaven with the radio off. So, last summer, um, 
the poet Nick Dembski, who has a really fine book called Nick Dembski, Poems by Nick Dembski, <laughs> came and read in Cincinnati and stayed at my house. And he was, he's a very, very tall. When he reads, he does this, and he's got long, crazy hair, and he flies around. And uh, he was really kind to my, to my daughter and my family. And when he left, he left a poem for her uh, on his pillow and a, and a letter that he wrote to her about uh, me and her mother. And the poem that he wrote for my then eight-year-old daughter was called Poem Where I Puke in God's Face. <laughs> This is called Poem with Some Answers to the Questions. Sad Punk Sutra, Sad Punk Sutra, and war against age and war against the ages. I curl the blue dumbbell. I run in the sun. I tell my students and anyone who will listen, what do you make, how do you make it, and why does it matter are the only three questions you ever need to answer. As a result, my friend leaves word on his pillow that he will puke in the face of God with so much love that God will have no choice but to tell us all why in the grand sense, after which we'll most certainly feel renewed with purpose or sorry we ever wanted to know in the first place, but at least we'll know. And the geese overhead will honk, they told us so, or congratulations, depending. What this proves is that the geese don't speak unless they have a reason, and even then what they say has to be interpreted by somebody. Another thing this proves is that God has a face to puke in. So the sad punks should cheer up and get to work since puking's one of the things that punks do best. <laughs> I'm 45 and happy, not sick about death. Sunset doesn't signal complete annihilation, just an evolution toward an ever more pink-orange consciousness than darkness and bewitchment. The ghost of John Keats has lately been seen beside me when I read poems in public, and the ghost of Gregory Corso glows whitely in my fisticuffs. Maybe you can see them now, riding their heartstrings, gathering courage. I make poems with words because I love you, and also because I believe that you love me. Those are my answers to the questions. Okay, is this okay? Are we all right? This is the last one. And then it's time for beer. Which I know you're all waiting for. This is called Glitter Puss. Whatever happens, Stance, this is the real. This is already, you're listening to Angel Less, the grass. Right here, right now, the white picket fencing, a black hole colliding with a Boy Scout troop delivering mulch to my driveway, cypress and enhanced platinum, 
But that's an entirely different experience. When will I die? Every day and always. I will paint racket the night with its stars of stupid breath. I will write, write, and write the wrongs of my people, my kind, 33 and a third. Both to show you I can, and just to show you I can rapture. And a forest comes up out of my amazement by the roots, the hair, your hair. Why is it so suspicious, the people talking too eloquently about popular culture, the merits of mania? I want words to be matches or not to be at all, to burn you up from the inside outlandish, which is a desire. When you get to be a punk rocker forever, a chair or a missile, and preach the zombie apocalypse dystopiary sequence of events the way I have, and the people come up to you with shoes full of drool and memos full of clever sentiments like on an ACDC record only not nearly as good or not nearly as recorded as history, the groovy, you'll know exactly what I mean. Baptism in the blood sack of doing more than a trapeze artists skimming the alphabet. The dinosaurs too used to be seraphim, I said, or I say, or I heard once somewhere, or they used to fall asleep on God's knees and his lap was a dog of napalm and he owned a long chain reaction of Goodyear tire stores that he used to bind Lucifer in a burning ring of fire. Went down, down, down and the flames went higher. But what's so mystifying about it is it's also a Johnny Cash song and my life is Nilla Wafers and a juice box. The truth is that most days I want to kill every single person on this planet so much with all my heart in an instant because it feels like the only way to perpetrate an empathetic entanglement never ending and then some. Often I've screamed the stripy anthem steeped in moss to prove that I believe it though mostly I choose to play the chameleon mid-argument these strings of associations and your collected disjunctive resistance are confetti to my ear. The sophist and sophisticated's got a slurry in a bog, a bog we made and continue to make our stringent red wine out of, our brain spawn cotton candy trending right now where we roll. Keep rolling, keep rolling, keep rolling along, hydraulics, mascara, and the Second Amendment's misinterpretive dance where everybody's fired and firing. Nasty, brutish, and short. And now, the Leviathan, wandering the meadow of beards, all fours, the pancreatic park with its stilt-legged bears. My nerves disappear the way a nerve always does. You just go on it, throbbing, and eventually it stops or it gets so bad you pass out in the street full of taxi cabs and rain, wet, yellow, black, and a paisley-covered ducks. Eventually the pain becomes a new way to love or the reason you've always wanted for your your hatred to have parents. You are not me, jack-o'-lantern, Toyota truck rabbit, this head of living lettuce, radicchio, Pinocchio. What could be the clearer? Who among us has the experience to smoke bomb the phoenix and crush the apple orchard and cough up the amusement that drowns us in its glamour? Not me. No way. I know it. No way. But not you either. We are scabrous together.
Oh, glitter puss, I punched the fuck out of your honey bun. Crashed my holy lung into a giant white moose. I wish to be inspired, but there's never any juice. Break a nose with an orange and drink whatever runs. Thank you. <laughs>